If you've got your Bibles this morning, would you open them with me to Luke chapter 13 this morning? When, when you think about the life of, of Jesus, it's, um, it's really kind of an astounding thought to realize that it, it seems like for the entirety of his life there was a price on his head. It seems like as he lived his life, at least the recorded life that we have for us in Scripture, he was the target of murderers. It's really, it's really very surprising if you think about it. Here is a man who was without sin. He had no evil in him. He was perfect. He was holy. He was completely compassionate. He was generous. He was benevolent. He offered what all of us need. He offered mercy and grace. He offered forgiveness of sin. He offered freedom from judgment, deliverance, joy, peace, life. And yet he was always the target of those seeking to take his life. While, while he was still an infant, you remember Herod the Great, paranoid ruler, Magi, the wise men arrived before him wanting to know where this one was who had been born the king. And Herod feared that there was a rival against him. He didn't know which child was the threat. And so he had all of the boys two years and under in Bethlehem murdered. When Jesus began his ministry, he goes to his own hometown of Nazareth and, and here he proclaims to the people that he is the promised Messiah of God, that he's going, to, he's going to have a ministry of deliverance, that people are going to be set free because of him. And he said it wouldn't be exclusive just to those of you who are Jews. We're going to open this up to the entirety of the world. And in their nationalistic pride... They couldn't handle this thought. And so infuriated, they, they exploded in this emotional effort to murder Jesus by throwing him off of a cliff. Later on in the continuation of his ministry, we read this in John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here was this man who affirmed that he was equal with God, and on the Sabbath day he had the audacity to love people enough to help them to minister to them, to heal them. And because of all of this, they hated him and wanted him dead. Here Jesus was turning the people's hearts back to God and proclaiming this liberty, proclaiming this freedom. And what did he receive as a result of it? The scripture is filled with it. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. John chapter 7, verse 1, And this Jesus went about in Galilee. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. John chapter 11, verse 53, So from that day they made plans to put him to death. Matthew chapter 26, we read, Then the chief priests, the elders of the people, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Can you imagine living under that kind of pressure? Can you imagine what it would be like all the time 
knowing that people were seeking to take your life. And in our text this morning, in, in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 13, we find the very same thing happening again. In Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, we see again uh, the, the, the desire for Jesus' life to be taken. And as we read through the verses, I want you to find this morning as we walk through this, first of all, the example of Jesus, then the compassion from Jesus, and then finally the response to Jesus. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 31, beginning in verse, excuse me, Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice with me, first of all, this morning, the example that Jesus gives to us in this passage about how we should live our lives. How would you react? How would you feel? What would be the, the, the common routine of your life if you knew and you had been hounded by those who wanted to kill you simply because of who you were and what you believed? What would you do differently in life? If you knew every day of your life, your life was in danger, what would you do differently? Would you come to work a different way? Every day, finding a different route. Would you find a way home different from the way you came home the day before? You would certainly get at a security system at home, wouldn't you? Of some sort, whatever it would be, an electronic or ammunition-wise one, I don't know. But you would have, a, you'd have an alarm system of some sort. Maybe you would even hire uh, professional security guards to travel with you so that you know that you would be safe no matter what happened. And here is Jesus out in the midst of everyone preaching the, the message of the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, going about his life and knowing that every day someone desires to take his life. He's surrounded by people who want him dead. We're, we're, we're told about Herod here who wants him killed. Most of the Pharisees want him dead. Eventually, the large crowd that we're going to meet in just a few chapters in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna, and then the cries of Hosanna are going to be replaced with the cries of crucify him. Put him to death. Jesus gives us an example of how to deal with these kinds of things. Thank heavens Jesus doesn't just give us an example. He does so much more than that. D Jesus didn't just tell us how to live our life. He lived life in our place. In our place, he died the death that we deserved. And if he hadn't done that, then everything he showed us by way of example would be worth absolutely nothing. If he had not lived for us in our place and died in our place, any example that he gives to us would have been meaningless. 
Because we would not have been able to have kept it. We wouldn't have been able to have lived up. But because he did do all of that, his example to us does matter. And this is one of those places where we need to follow the example of Jesus. We very likely may never face our lives being in danger because we are followers of Jesus Christ. But we might. Had a conversation just a week ago, in fact, in our live group. Gentleman said to me, he said, you know, as I look around to young people today, I see that young people want something to live for that is worth dying for. Something to live for that's worth giving my life for. Something to live for that is bigger than me, that is greater than me. What would it be like if we started to live our lives as though we had something worth dying for in our lives? Jesus is approached by the Pharisees here, and, and they give him a message. They say, you need to get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. Well, don't, don't think the Pharisees were really all that concerned with Jesus and what was going on in his life. They, they weren't concerned to protect Jesus. Uh, Herod had already killed John the Baptist. He didn't really want to do that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, what happened with that. Uh, they, they knew that Herod wanted to do something with Jesus, but he did not know what to do with Jesus. And so the Pharisees knew that if they could get Jesus off track and out of the region of Perea, where he was, and get him into the region of Judea, then they could do something with him because they had much more jurisdiction there to deal with Jesus than they did if he went on to Judea. And so they're told, they're told to Jesus, they say to Jesus, get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Now, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that this is the same Herod who killed all of the children uh, after the birth of Jesus that you read about with the wise men. It's a different Herod. It's actually his son. That was Herod the Great. This is his son, Herod Antipas. After Herod the Great dies... He has three sons, and he divides up the region here among those three sons. His son, Archelaus, is given Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. His son, Philip, is given Euteria and Trachonitis. And then his son, Antipas, Herod Antipas he is known by, he's given the region of Galilee and Perea. This Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. And he's the Herod you read about in, in the life of Jesus as you read the Gospels, except for that one encounter with Herod killing all of the children after the visit from the wise men. The other Herod you read about is his son, Herod Antipas, and the Jews hated Antipas. They hated him with a passion. He built the capital city of Tiberias. Now, it was a beautiful city. The ruins of it today are still magnificent, right on the Mediterranean Sea there. It is a beautiful area. But Herod Antipas built his capital city of Tiberias on top of a Jewish cemetery, defiling it forever in the minds of the Jews because he hated them so much. He put idols all over the place in the region of Tiberias here. This Herod that we read about, you, you know him maybe by his encounters with John the Baptist. Herod, this is how vile and wicked these people were. Modern day soap operas have nothing on the Word of God. I'm just going to tell you. The Word of God simply tells the history of people. And as we look about history, Herod Antipas had an affair with, with his brother Philip's wife. So Herod Antipas 
has an affair with his sister-in-law. And then he marries her. He now has a niece who is his daughter. They're not even from West Virginia. I mean, this is crazy. If you're from West Virginia, well, I don't apologize. It's okay. So Herod Antipas has a birthday party one day. And his niece slash daughter comes in and dances for this birthday party. Now, this, this, this is not a square dance that she does. This is lewd. It is sensual. For all of Antipas's guests and him sitting there, she performs this lewd dance for him. And, and overcome with emotion, he promises to give to her whatever she wants. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Why would she single out John the Baptist? Well, because John the Baptist is speaking into this cultural scene in which he lives, and he calls out Herod and his sister-in-law wife and says, what you are doing is vile and ungodly, and you need to repent of that. And Herod's wife, Herodias, doesn't like being called out on her behavior. And so she says to her daughter, you say that you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is that Herod. It would have been no surprise whatsoever that Herod wanted Jesus dead. This, this is a man who has no moral compass whatsoever. These were the rulers at the time of Jesus' life. These were people who had no idea of right and wrong, good and bad. It wouldn't be mistaken to say that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Of course he did, as so many others did as well. And so these Pharisees, they share the message. And look at the response that Jesus gives. I love the response from Jesus here. And this is the example that he lives, leaves for us. He said to them, you go and you tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today, tomorrow, and the third day. I'll finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You go give that fox a message for me. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die. You see, the reason that it didn't bother Jesus that he lived under threat of death every day is because he knew that he had come to life to die. He knew that he had come to this earth in order to give his life as a ransom for people. And he says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to die. I'm not scared that Herod wants to kill me. And by the way, uh, that old fox can't lay a finger on me because I'm not going to die one minute before the Father wants me to die. I am secure in the job I'm doing and I will accomplish it until it's done and I will trust God in the meantime for every bit of it. It's interesting that Herod Antipas is the only individual recorded in all of the New Testament for whom the Lord express such contempt as this. Oh, Fox, he's sly, he's cunning, he's wily, but there's not really all that much to him, honestly. It's, it's an expression of just utter contempt. 
In fact, later on, Jesus will appear before Herod, before he's crucified. And when he appears before Herod, the Bible tells us that Jesus doesn't speak a word to him. Herod thought he was all high and mighty. He thought he was somebody. He thought he had power. He thought he had authority. And Jesus was reminding him in what he says here about him and what he doesn't say to him later, you have no authority over me. None. And he comes along and as he stands before Herod, Jesus says nothing to him. Friends, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. Jesus says to them here, I'm going to keep right on doing what I do until I'm done. My life is in God's hands. God is providentially watching over me, and Jesus absolutely trusts in the Father's providence. He's not afraid. He's not concerned. He knows the purpose of his life. And what an example that is to us about how we ought to be living our lives. We aren't facing the threat of death that I know of. None of you here this morning that I know of are facing the threat of death because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The threats to us are much less than that. We're we're threatened with perhaps a friendship. We're threatened perhaps with a relationship. If we're bold in our walk with Jesus, we're threatened perhaps with the loss of a job. I don't know. Our threats are much less than the threat of losing a life. And so if Jesus can be an example for us of how to live when life is on the line, surely he can be an example to us of how to trust God no matter what. You see, Jesus is is essentially reminding us in his life of what he has taught us through his words. We looked at it several weeks ago in Luke chapter 12, verse 6. Jesus said, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do you understand the freedom that there is in this? Do you understand the liberty that there is in this, to trust God completely, even with your very life? When we have renounced everything that there is in this life for the sake of the gospel, trusting him to care for us, there is such freedom in that. Such freedom to rest in the sovereign providence of God. Such freedom to rest knowing that God is in control of all of it. What happens is we live our lives so entangled to this world that we forget the mission to which we've been called. We can't imagine people uh, leaving everything and going to the mission field where danger is all around them. Why? Because we're so entangled to this world. What am I going to give up in order to do something like that? Jesus' example to us is simply this. God is in control, Herod isn't. God's in control. Nothing is going to happen outside of the purview of God's providential care for his children. 
simply means this. Whatever is going on in your life, God can be trusted. He can be trusted. You, you, you live in fear of things that may or may not happen. We worry, we fret, we grow anxious, we lose sleep. All the while forgetting simply that God is in control. Revelation chapter 12 tells us how we overcome. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Sometimes I feel like it's almost ridiculous to ask if we would be willing to die for Jesus because quite honestly, really and truly, we're not even living for him. But Jesus' example to us is so encouraging that we can trust God to care for us as we live for Him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. What are you living for? Jesus simply comes along and He says, I've got a mission, I've got a purpose, and I'm going to do what God has called me to do regardless of the threats that come. So what are you living for? Let me ask it this way. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? So there's the example of Jesus. Secondly, coming out of this, there is the compassion from Jesus. His example, simply trust. Trust God to take care of you. Trust God in these circumstances. Trust God in your faithful obedience to Him that He will be faithful to you as well. And then we see the compassion from Jesus. Nevertheless, verse 33, I go on my way today and tomorrow the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to do the very thing God has sent me here to do. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Later, Jesus will come into the city of Jerusalem, and before he enters, he'll stand there on the Mount of Olives, and he'll look over the city, and the Bible tells us that he will weep because of their rejection. What a beautiful picture of care and compassion. And Jesus is saying this to the very people who are going to kill him in just a little while. What a heart of compassion he has. He knows these people have rejected him, and yet he longs for them to know him. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament book of Lamentation says this, chapter 3, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jesus lived this life of compassion constantly through his ministry all the way to the very end. As he came before the crowds of people and he sees them, Matthew chapter 9 tells us when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Before he miraculously provides the food at the feeding of the 4,000, Matthew 15, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. 
And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus encounters two blind men in his ministry. In Matthew chapter 22, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, in compassion, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus encounters a leper in Mark chapter 1. The leper comes imploring him, kneeling. He says to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Luke chapter 7 that we looked at quite a while back, there is a funeral procession and there Jesus is coming into the city and this boy is being transported out. He's dead, the only son of his mother. And when Jesus looks at this woman, we are told that he had compassion on her. You see, when you become a Christian, you have a heart like Jesus. It's a heart of compassion for those who are lost, a heart of compassion for those who are hurting. There is a longing for those who do not know Jesus to come to know Him. And look at this beautiful word picture that he uses here, like a hen who gathers her brood under her wings. Jesus says, but you weren't willing. I wanted to. As a hen gathers her chicks and brings them into safety and security, but you were not willing. Those who are lost forever are not lost as a result of a lack of compassion on the part of Jesus. They're lost because of their rejection of that compassion from Jesus. He was compassionate. He loved people. He loves you. Here we're told not only the example of Jesus, not only the compassion of Jesus, but finally the response to Jesus. Behold, verse 35, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The response to Jesus. You see, we've, we've grown accustomed in, in this world to really think we can be kind of indifferent about Jesus in responding to Him. But of all the things you might be, indifference is not one of them. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus. You either accept Him or you reject Him. The Pharisees wanted Him out of Galilee. That was their response. Herod wanted to kill him. That was his response. The people of Jerusalem eventually will, will reject him and kill him, just like the Old Testament prophets were done before him. And here Jesus is speaking to these religious, God-fearing people who had their Bibles. They knew it, and yet they rejected Jesus. I think there's a message for us in this. We consider ourselves to be a God-fearing people. We've got our Bibles. We, we can argue theology with you if you want to. But the question ultimately is, have we embraced Jesus by faith? Have we trusted Him? Do we treasure Him more than anything else? Or is He just something to, to add on to our life? 
We've got everything else going on, and I'll just bring Jesus in on this. And so we'll, we'll seek maybe to, to, to fill up for about an hour a week, and then the rest of our days we'll just do what we really want to do and what we care about. Jesus makes it very clear. He said, your house is forsaken. Because of your rejection, your house is forsaken. What was Jesus' response to that? How often I would have gathered you together, but you weren't willing in his compassion, in his heart filled with love for people. And he says, but you've rejected. Because of that, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, there, there's going to be a day at some point when we will all say this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's coming a day when we will all say this either in our acceptance of him as Lord or our rejection of him as Lord. But we will be incapable, unable to deny the simple fact that he is Lord. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus is is Lord. You will either do that in acceptance of who he is or ultimate rejection of who he is. You will accept him and willingly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Or you will reject him in this life and in eternity to come you will have no choice but to acknowledge that he is Lord. You will either be a recipient of his compassion or you will be an object of his judgment. If today you do not know him, the call is very clear that you might come to trust him today. That you might simply come by faith in acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Compassionate, merciful Jesus who died the death that you and I deserve. The call is clear. Come now while breath is still in your lungs. The call of, for us who know him is simply this. Be like him. Do not live in fear of what this world may do to his followers. Trust God in all of that and everything else. Simply in compassion, go to proclaim that message that Jesus is Lord. The question is quite simply this. Is he your Lord? Have you trusted him? Have you confessed faith in him? If not, we invite you to do so this morning. Father, this morning we thank you again for this day. We thank you for that grace given to us in Jesus. We thank you not only for the example that is set before us, 
We thank you for the example that is empowered to us, that we might live for Jesus in simple, obedient trust to you and compassion to those around us, that we might follow Jesus every moment of every day for your glory and for our good. We pray this now in his name. Now still in just an attitude of prayer this morning, to prepare our hearts to take part together in the Lord's Supper meal with one another, just to, to take a moment to examine your own heart. To take a moment and ask the Lord to reveal to you where you are spiritually. And maybe just in, in the stillness of this moment, in this time of prayer, that you might examine yourself. Coming in confession and repentance, a heart prepared to take the meal together. In just this moment of silence, would you just pray? Would you just seek the Lord in this? Father, in preparation for taking this meal together, we ask, please, would you, would you search our hearts today and reveal to us what is within ourselves? That, Father, if there are things that need not be there, you would, you would show us that, that we would be quick to confess and repent of that. That, Father, as you search us, you would reveal to us things that are not there that should be there. That they would be replaced quickly by your mercy and your goodness to us. But most importantly, Father, we ask, please, would you, would you make clear to us our standing with Christ this morning? that we come in acceptance of him only. And that if there is anyone who has rejected him to this point, that this might be the day they trust in him and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We thank you for this time together, Father, all that it means and all that it displays for us. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been to churches before where they do the Lord's Supper, we, we may do it a little bit differently here than what you've seen. We're going to invite you to come, and, and Pastor Stephen and I will be standing here. And as you come, we invite you to, to take one of the wafers that represents the body of Jesus. It's a, it's a very, very uh, worshipful experience. It's filled with meaning and pictures. The, the wafer, the bread that represents the body of Jesus given for us and how he died 
literally, physically, in our place. As you come, we invite you to take one of the wafers and to eat that, and then come to either side here and pick up uh, one of the cups of juice and take that back to your seat with you. We will collectively drink that together as a symbol of the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. This is a tremendous object lesson for us. We see the message of the gospel played out in front of us in the taking of these elements. We are reminded of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And we're internalizing these elements to say, I believe this. I hold to this personally. We do this individually because only individually can you come to Christ. But we drink collectively because when we are brought into the family of Christ, we're brought into the body of believers. And so collectively we drink together. If you're not a follower of Christ today, our goal and our intent is not to shame you in any way. Our goal and intent is to proclaim to you the message of the gospel through these elements. If you're not a follower of Christ, we invite you just simply to remain seated where you are and to observe what goes on around you. If you are a follower of Christ, we will invite you to come and take part in this meal together with us and all that it means and all that's involved within it. So, Pastor Stephen, I'm going to ask you if you would to come. For those of you that may have allergies or sensitivities, we do have an option, a gluten-free option for you this morning. Let us know. We'll provide that for you as well. And then we will invite you, if you would, let's come together and let's share the meal together with one another. You come.